The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Um, cool. If you want to open your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter 12, uh, please do so. We are in a series at the moment. We're in week two of a series where we are, it's called God's, um, oh, sorry, the, the big picture. And, and we are basically looking at the entire Old Testament in the space of about two months. We're just kind of, it's kind of like skimming across, uh, skimming a rock across water. Like that's about how deep we're going. We're just kind of bouncing across the top of the Old Testament here. So it's not in huge amounts of depth. But the idea of the series is to give us confidence, give us a bit of a map. So when we do open up the Old Testament, we can go, what on earth does this mean? And, and feel like we've got a bit of an answer. Feel like we, at least we know what kind of resources or what kind of things we can access to get that. So Genesis 12 um, is where we're going to start today. If you're using one of the Bibles at the back, that's on page uh, 10. Um, we're also going to be looking at Genesis 15 as well. And those Bibles at the back, uh, like Jared said, uh, if you don't have one, please take one home. We'd love for, that, for you to keep that. Um, they, they are ESV Bibles, English Standard Version Bibles. Um, I'm using today the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, um, just because I'm loving this translation at the moment. I've been journaling through it all year, and I'm just, you might see me chop and change between them. So if I'm reading something on my page, and it's different to the screen behind me, I apologize for that, but yeah. Um, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. <clears throat> Father, we, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've given us your word for us to be able to understand and, and to read and to know more about you, Lord. And Lord, we are grateful that we don't just come to the Bible to learn about you, but we also come to, the, to come to the Bible to encounter you, God. This is where you've revealed yourself. This is who you are, God. And, and we, so we thank you, God, that we have that. We have this in, before us. And we can say with confidence, Lord, that you love us and your heart for us is big and powerful because you, you, you sent your son to die on a cross for our, our sins, Lord. And we are so grateful for that. So, Lord, we ask that as we open your word and spend this time in your word this morning, you would speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, come and convict us where we need to be convicted. Come and challenge us where we need to be challenged. Come and comfort us where we need to be comforted, God. Grow us, Lord. Make us more and more like you this morning, Father. We love you, Jesus. Amen. When I was about 13 years old, my friend Rob and I used to sneak out of church and go and find somewhere to hang out. Now, it was hard to sneak out of church when you're 13, you sit next to your mum and your dad because they would obviously just pull you back in. And so we used to come up with a story that we were going out to help out with the kids' program. Like we, we were too old for the kids' program, but oh, mom, I'm just going to go help out with the, with the kids' program. Like the leader of the kids' program has asked me to come and help out, and she would... Obviously, I've, knowing my mother, she probably saw through my lies but didn't want to have an argument in the middle of church. And so I would sneak out under that pretense and then um, my friend Rob and I would both sneak out and then we'd, we'd kind of go and help out for a little bit and then pretend we needed somewhere else and then kind of slowly disappear and then find a space in the church building somewhere where we could just hang out with no adults around and avoid the sermon. Kind of hilarious to me right now that I became a pastor. Um, so we'd sneak out and there's one time... We, we found that the hall, which was separate to the, where the rest of the church was, the hall was empty. There was no adults in there. And it had just been set up for morning tea, ready for everybody to come out and have morning tea. And Rob and I were like, hey, this is a great place to hang out, no adults. And because there's no adults here telling us what to do, let's kick a soccer ball around. But that makes sense. And so we started kicking the ball around. And as 
luck would have it, fate would have it. Uh, I kicked the ball at one stage, and the ball suddenly went into slow motion and it sailed over Rob's head, way behind him, and collided perfectly with the neatly arranged stack of ceramic cups for tea and coffee for, for morning tea afterwards, and sent them smashing to the ground, and it was like it kind of came back into real time in there, and it was bad. Like, I broke, I don't know, like over 20 or 30 cups. It was, it was bad, and... Um, I felt horrible, I felt really horrible. My friend Robert thought it was hilarious because it wasn't him. And so um, he um, just proceeded to make me feel even more terrible because he was just like licking his lips at my pain. And, uh, and then, you know, words started to spread. People came out, saw this mess, and we tried to clean it up and it was bad. And I, I, I became pretty convinced that I was the talk of the town that morning at church. Like, I can't lip read, but I'm pretty sure every single conversation that morning in the hall was, well, how terrible is he? What a terrible person is he? Um, my mother was mortified, and she made me wait to the very, very end of church when everybody had left to face Pastor Charles. And that was terrifying for me, because Pastor Charles, was, at that stage, he was a scary man. And he isn't a scary, he's a lovely guy, but I was terrified. He just broken all his cups. I was terrified of him. And so, uh, I waited for Pastor Charles to end, and he came over, and there was a group of us, and he just said very calmly, quite coolly, who was being silly. And I owned up, and Rob was standing behind Pastor Charles with a big grin on his face. I was like, it was me. And he looked at me, and he just said, probably wasn't the wisest thing to do, was it? And I said, nope. And he took a deep breath and exhaled and looked off into the distance pensively. And I'm like terrified inside. <clears throat> and then he walked off. And Rob was really annoyed because he thought that I had gotten off easy. But I wasn't so sure because it was Pastor Charles's cold, quiet disappointment that absolutely stung me to my bones. Like, I don't know if your mother ever said to you, I'm just so disappointed in you. It's that kind of feeling like, oh, mom, anything else but the disappointment thing. And it was kind of like that. I had this moment, like, all I wanted, actually, I, it would have felt better if Pastor Charles had just said, if he just raised his voice, if he just screamed at me, maybe even whacked me over the head, that would have been preferable to him just being cold, quiet, and disappointing. And it got, got me right to my heart. One of the things that I am so often shocked and embarrassed about when it comes to my own heart is how reluctant I am to receive the grace of God in my life. There's a part of me that doesn't quite believe that God's grace is powerful enough, strong enough, God's love for me is strong enough to actually deal with my sin. I, I feel like I need some other kind of punishment to take place. I feel like it'd just be easier if God could just come down and yell at me and scold me and maybe whack me over the head. Then I would feel and I would know it's, it's done. It's been, it's been dealt with. Sometimes I interpret grace as God's cold, or I interpret not, that not happening as God's cold disappointment with me. Now, at the very least, there are two massive problems with thinking that. There's lots of problems. At the very least, there's two big problems. The first one is an underestimation of my sin, which is to say, <clears throat> if God could just come down and yell at me, that would be good because then it would be dealt with. 
my sin deserves a lot more than a scolding and a whack over the head. Like my sin has offended and rebelled against the infinite eternal God of the universe. So there's an, there's an, uh, an underestimation of my sin there, but then there's also somewhat of an overestimation of my sin, <clears throat> or to put it a different way, an underestimation of the power of God's grace in my life. I underestimate the goodness and the kindness and the love of Jesus to truly deal with my sin in a way that is actually eternal. My heart struggles to comprehend how deep and how wonderful and how thorough and how eternal and how big God's heart is towards me, how God's heart is big and warm and loving and kind towards me. That is his disposition towards me. His countenance towards me is kind lovingness. Can you relate to that? Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you think that you've maybe out-sinned God. Like you've done stuff that God could never forgive and you've, you've out-sinned the grace of God. If that's you, Mike, can you just hear this? And this is good news for you. You're wrong. We can't out-sin the grace of God. God's grace is more powerful than our sin. Like that old song, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Or maybe you're here and you're a Christian, but you don't know what to do with those sins that just keep appearing in your life. Those sins that you know a Christian shouldn't be doing these things, and yet they continue to pop up. And the fact that you keep returning to the sin, even though you hate it, the fact that you keep returning to the sin, even though you're a Christian, even though you've been saved, it starts to make you question and doubt your salvation. Like, maybe I'm not actually saved. Maybe this is something that I'm just kind of put on. Maybe I'm just kind of going through the motions. Maybe this is actually where my heart is. Maybe God's grown tired of me. Maybe God's patience with me is wearing thin. And you might be thinking to yourself, if only God could just come and scold me and get angry at me, then it would be dealt with. Then I would know where I stand. If that's you, the section that we're going to study today gives us insight on how we can face that. We're looking today at Abram, or Abraham. And you can't get a decent idea of the story of the Old Testament without stopping at the story of Abraham. Abraham, according to Romans 4, is, is the father of all who believe. He's one of the most important figures in the entire Bible. So in a, in a series where we are trying to walk our way through the Old Testament, we need to have a stop at Abraham and talk about Abraham. So we're going to be looking today at, uh, at two moments in Abraham's life where God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. There's much else we could say about Abraham. We could do a whole eight weeks or a longer series than that on Abraham himself. Um, but for today, we're just going to be looking at Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and the covenant that God makes with Abraham. So let's read Genesis 12, verses 1 to 7. The Lord said to Abram, now, his name becomes Abraham in Genesis 17. So if you, refer, if I, if you hear me saying Abram or Abraham or switching between the two of them, I'm talking about the same person. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord told him. And Lot went with him. Lot is his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. 
He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the side of Shechem at the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Last week, we looked in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 at the creation story and how God created his people to live in his place under his blessing. Now, throughout this series, you're going to hear me using those three terms a lot. God's people living in God's place under God's blessing. Um, and, and these are just terms to help us understand a bit about God's kingdom, that God's kingdom is wherever God rules over his people, where God rules. And so I've not, I've not invented these terms, God's people, God's place, God's blessing. Um, if you want to find out more about this, uh, I've, I've borrowed these from Vaughan Roberts' book, God's Big Picture, really helpful read for understanding the whole narrative of the Bible. Um, people, place, and blessing is another way of understanding God's kingdom. And what we learned last week, that the story of, we learned about the story of God creating his kingdom, creating God's people to live in his place, under his rule, under his blessing. But then sin came along, and sin fractured it. Sin messed it all up. And the question that we were kind of left with afterwards, after the Garden of Eden, is how can God's people come back into God's place, into God's presence again? How can they become God's people again? Then the story as we follow through Genesis after the, after the garden is that things don't get much better. In fact, things get quite a lot worse. Uh, Cain kills Abel. We get the story of Noah and the ark. We get the story of the Tower of Babel. But God is at work. And even though sin continues to deface humanity, God is going to fix it. We learned that last week. A God comes in, he says to the snake, Cursed are you, and I am going to fix this. Whatever it costs, it's going to cost me everything, but I am going to fix this. And God is at work in this moment. And so God comes to this guy named Abram in Genesis 12, and he makes a covenant with Abram. Now, a covenant is simply a solemn commitment or a promise made from one person to another. It's, and the solemn commitment that God made to Abram was that his plan to rescue the world, to rescue mankind from their sin and reverse what, was going to ha- what happened in the garden, God's plan was going to begin with Abram. God was going to bless Abram, and this blessing meant salvation. God's promise was that he was going to save humanity, beginning with Abram. And so let's just dissect this covenant a bit. Let's have a look at this, the anatomy of the covenant. What exactly does God promise to Abram? Well, as we read through Genesis 12, and, and then what becomes repeated and revised and renewed, is that this, uh, this covenant is really kind of made up of three key elements. Firstly, God was going to bless Abraham with descendants, saying in verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. This was remarkable, because we learn in Genesis 11 that his wife Sarai was unable to conceive children. Secondly, God was going to give Abram and his descendants a place to dwell in, a land to dwell in. He took them to the land of Canaan and said, um, to your offspring I will give this land in verse 7. This land of Canaan is where um, Abraham dwelled in and we learn towards the end of Genesis that Israel, uh, the, the people, God, God's family moved out of Canaan and down to Egypt and they come back to the promised land later on. Uh, 
Then thirdly, God was going to be a blessing to Abram and his descendants. God was going to go with them. He was going to be everything they needed. He was going to be the source of all that is good for Abram. And more than that, uh, God's people would be a blessing to the, to the nations around them. In other words, God was promising to restore what was ruined in the garden. His people living in his place under his blessing. God was going to steer back on course what sin had steered off course. And it was going to start with Abram. That's the, that's the a general view of the covenant. Now, very importantly now, we have to look at the, examine the basis of the covenant. In other words, why Abram and not someone else? Because as you're reading through Genesis 10 and 11, Abram's just a name on the page. He's just one of the guys, one of the people who were mentioned there. Was there anything special about Abram that made God choose Abram? No, not really. Like, was he an especially righteous man or a God-fearer? It's hard to tell. He can't, it doesn't look like it. He, he came from the city of Ur, which was steeped in pagan worship to the moon god called Nana. Like, it wasn't that he was a particularly God-fearing man. Maybe it was that, God, it's that, that Abram showed a great propensity for obedience. Maybe he had really great potential. Well, as we read through Abram's life, we can kind of see, yeah, there are some really wonderful moments where, God, where Abram does believe God and he does trust God. But then there are also some really horrible moments where Abram, on a repeated basis, rebels against God and takes things into his own hand. Okay, well, maybe he chose Abram because God was hoping to create a nation out of this family. And Abram, you know, he's, he has good genes. He's, he's, he's going to create a great nation, great people out of this. Well, no, not at all. We've already learned his wife, Sarai, was unable to conceive. There's nothing particularly incredible about Abram. In fact, I find the most striking thing about Abram is that there's nothing striking about Abram. He's just a regular guy. And this is where we come upon one of the most important things we can ever understand about our God, is that our God chose Abram by his grace. It was not because of anything that Abram had ever contributed or could ever contribute, but simply because of God's gracious choice. God's plan to save mankind from sin was based entirely upon the initiative of God himself and will be entirely accomplished by God himself. In fact, if you go back and read the covenant again, God says, I will, no less than seven times. I will do this, God says. I am the one who's going to do it. The covenant that God made with Abram for the salvation of mankind was based entirely on God's initiative and based entirely on God's capacity to see it through. And this is good news for us because you and I are kind of mentioned here in this covenant in Genesis 12. Read verse 3. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We're people. We're on earth. We receive the blessing of Abraham's descendants. And this is true of us because of Jesus Christ, the, the one who was to come from the offspring of Eve and the one who was from the family of God to make a way for all mankind, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of background, regardless of their history. Jesus made a way for people to come back into the presence of God, to, become, to come under God's blessing, to become God's people once again. Jesus saves us from our sins, and like Abram, his sovereign choice to save us by his grace is not based upon anything that we do. It's not based upon anything that we have done to impress God. It's not because we've got a great potential to be a good servant for God or have the capacity. It's because it's entirely based on his eternal grace and his loving kindness towards us. 
So we've looked at the anatomy of the covenant, we've looked at the basis of the covenant, and now we're going to look at the, God's faithfulness to the covenant. And this is my final point. But don't get too excited, because this is my biggest point. So don't, don't think, oh, we're almost done, sweet as. Uh, we're not. God makes this landmark and historic covenant in Genesis 12, but as we read through the next couple of chapters, the covenant doesn't really seem to take shape. Like, if you're reading through, you're like... What happened there? Like God comes and promises this stuff in Genesis 12 and then things just go south. It just things kind of go a bit pear-shaped. There's some good things, but then Abraham makes some pretty massive blunders and after about 25 years, he's, he's still childless. And there isn't really a clear sign that God's promises have been fulfilled. And you can no doubt expect that for Abraham, if you walk in Abraham's shoes, that there's a question going on in his mind. Like, God, what happened with that? Like that, no, that was creeping into Abram's, into Abram's heart. And this is why when we come to Genesis 15, God meets with Abram again and he begins with these words, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. And it's here that God reminds Abram about his promises and renews Abram's trust in him. So let's read Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, Look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars, if you were able to count them. Then he said to him, Your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So God's words here, they are intended to comfort Abram. In the last few chapters, Abram's been through quite a lot. And so God begins with these words, Do not fear. I am your shield. It's a reminder of, about God's goodness. But you can sense Abram's doubt. You can, sense, you can sense him starting to waver here. Lord, what can you give me since I am childless? You've given me no offspring. It's like he's saying, You've promised me a whole lot of stuff 25 years ago. If chances of that happening back then were slim, they're almost non-existent now. God, what gives? Where are you? God's reply then to Abram is beautiful and overwhelming. He starts off by saying, Abram, yeah, he takes him outside. And I just love that little instruction. Like, come outside, Abram. Like, there's just something so simple and normal about that. Like, if you read sometimes, we skip past that. But the word of the Lord came to Abram. Let's go outside the tent, mate beautiful. Abram, look up. Look at the sky. See all of the stars. Count them if you're able to. Now, I think that's a bit funny because Abram can't count the stars. There's too many of them. Like if I was to say to you, hey, could you just step outside for a moment and lift my car above your head? You would say, that's impossible. I can't do that. Abram can't count the stars. And, but, and by God inviting Abram to try and count the stars was not so much an, a, 
an invitation to try and count the stars. It was an invitation to trust the one who can count the stars. Psalm 147 says that God counts the number of stars, and not only that, he gives names to all of them. Abram can't do that. This isn't really an invitation from God to say, hey, Abram, see if you can count the stars. I want to actually see, can you please count the stars for me? It's an invitation for Abram to, to trust God. It's an invitation for Abram to, to go, okay, I can't count these stars. I've obviously got to rely on you. God goes on. Your offspring will be that numerous. I mean, isn't that just so overwhelming? Isn't that just massive? Like looking at the stars of the sky, your offspring, the people who are going to come from your line, they will be that numerous. That's a very big claim. Very, very overwhelming. Even though it hasn't happened yet, the child that would would be born to Abram will give rise to the family. And that family will give rise to the nation of Israel. And then when Jesus comes, that nation will become a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And they will be called the descendants of Abraham. They will be called the family of God. God says, if, if, God, sorry, if, God can count the names, if God can count the stars and name the stars, then his people, which will not only be as numerous as the stars, but also be exceeding in value to God than the stars, God will be able to count them. God will actually name them. People are made in God's image. You and I are made in God's image. And even though Abram's descendants far outnumber anything we could ever count, the descendants of faith. God knows our name. God knows you. He knows what today has held for you. God knows what this last week has held for you. God knows what this last year has held for you. God knows what's coming this week. God knows what's coming next week. Some of you have received very bad news this week. I know we've, we've talked. Some of us are going to experience bad news this week. God knows us. God knows our pain. He doesn't just know about our pain. He feels our pain. He feels the sting of it with us. He is endlessly compassionate. He is endlessly loving towards us. Lovingly sympathetic in everything that he does. Whatever you have endured in your life, you, you might find this hard to stomach, but God knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And then in verse 6, verse six, we're told something really, really important. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now this line is incredibly important to the entire Bible. Upon hearing God's uh, overwhelming promise, Abram believed God. God had not delayed. His plan had not stalled. He was going to go through with his plan to make Abram's descendants into a people who would be given a place to live under God's blessing, under God's rule, under God's law. God was establishing his kingdom on earth and he told Abram that it would happen through his descendants and Abram believed him. And because Abram believed him, righteousness was credited to Abram. Now, righteousness simply means rights, a right standing. Like, if you were to go to a wedding and you get there and you, you realize you were horribly underdressed, like horribly underdressed, like thongs were just a bad idea. And there should only be like a few holes in this shirt, not all these holes in this shirt. 
Or maybe you go to someone's party and you've missed the invitation. There's actually like a black tie thing and it's a fancy restaurant and, there's, and you're like, oh dear. I mean, how do you feel when that's... Like, imagine yourself in that scenario. What do you want to do in that moment? You want to run away. You want to hide. You, want, you don't want anybody to see you. You want to cover yourself. You don't want people to see you because you feel like you can't stand rightly before people. That's what Adam and Eve felt in the garden, that when they sinned and they, and they felt that, that shame, they suddenly realized that they were naked. They felt unrighteous because they had lost their righteousness. What do they do? They try and hide from God. They try and cover this, themselves up. They try and make themselves righteous themselves. They lost their righteousness. And this is why Abram is so important. The thing that was lost in the garden is now given freely to Abram. Why? Why Abram? Was it because he earned it? Was it because he did something to impress God? Was it because he had some kind of great potential? No. It was because he simply believed God. He believed that God was going to do exactly what God said that he would do. And even that belief that Abram had didn't begin with Abram. It wasn't that Abram had this strong faith and he had this kind of waiting around, waiting for someone to come, someone worthy to come and put his faith in. That faith actually comes from God. Faith is a gift from God himself. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 2. Faith is a gift from God. And so God gives Abram the faith that Abraham can take that and put his faith back in God. And because Abram believed God, because he put his faith in God, he was credited with righteousness. And friends, the message of the gospel is that each one of us has walked in the footsteps of Adam and we have lost our righteousness. And though we might try and make ourselves righteous, we might try and pretty ourselves up, we might try and polish our lives, we might try and make ourselves very impressive, trying to impress God and show God, look, I am worthy, I am an excellent candidate for salvation, it is completely fruitless. It is of no avail. Those attempts are completely futile. We can't do it. And because we were helpless, because we were sinners, and we could, because we could not make ourselves righteous, God, in his great love for us, credits us with righteousness, not our own, so that we might come into his presence. We might, we might know him, we might come into a relationship with him. God is the one who saves us. So how does God do that? Well, that word credit is incredibly important. So if you open up your phone right now and go to your internet banking and you were to see there was $5,000 extra in your account that shouldn't be there, your first question, your first thought would, 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 might be like, yes, awesome. But your second question is, where did that come from? What's the source of this credit? Like, where, where did this, where, who credited this? When we read that God credited Abraham, Abraham, Abraham with righteousness, we should ask, where did that come from? Who gave it? Someone had to give it. That person had to be righteous themselves and they had to willingly give their righteousness and that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave us his righteousness on the cross. The Apostle Paul explains this in Romans 4 better than I ever could. He says about Abraham, he did not waver in unbelief at God's promise but was strengthened in his faith. Notice he doesn't say, but Abraham had strong faith. Now, he was strengthened as passive. He received strength in his faith from God. He was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. 
Therefore, it was credited, him, credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the question that we were left with at the end of last week, after the garden, is how can God's people come back? How can people come back into the presence of God again? How can this work? How can mankind and God be reconciled back together again? If God is holy and mankind has brought sin into the world, how can they be reconciled? Another way we'd ask that question is, how can mankind become righteous, become righteous again? Or another way we could ask it is, how will God save mankind? How will God forgive sins? It's the same question, the same answer, just worded differently. The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the one who suffered the curse of death on our behalf, and he was delivered up for our trespasses. Jesus is the one who God raised from the dead. Jesus is the one who was raised for our justification, that we might become righteous before God. Jesus is the answer to the question that the garden leaves. And the only way we can be, that this can, can become true of us is if we, like Abraham, believe in the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This means to look at the cross and say, that's enough. Not to say, I need to add something to it. Not to say, I need to be scolded. Not to say, I need to be punished. Not, not to expect only anger and, and fury and... and Disappointment from God because God satisfied his wrath on the cross. We've got to understand when we think about God, and I think it was Mike Westhaven who came and preached while I was away, who said one of the most important things, and I think he's quoted in someone else, one of the most important things about us is what we think about when we think about the face of God. Like if you imagine God's face right now looking at you, is he staring at you with anger? Is he, is he angry at you? Is he disappointed with you? Or is he kind and big-hearted and warm and loving towards you? See, if we, like, like I, how I so often find myself reluctant to receive the grace of God, that is sin. When God has been so generous to us in, in giving us his loving kindness, it is, it is a travesty that we would say, oh, but God, I deserve your... I, 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 God, it's a travesty to say, God, give me, give me pain. Or, or we expect anger from God. No, God comes to us in love. The only way this can become true of us is if we believe in the cross and believe in Jesus Christ. God is the one who did it. God is the one who is enough. He did, he did what is enough to save us. Now, if we had to stop there, that would be great, right? The gospel, so wonderful, so good. But it just gets better. <laughs> like Genesis 15:7 just gets better. Weird, but better. Reading from verse 7, he, that's God, also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from, the, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, Abram, said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? Now before Abram's question was filled with doubt, this seems to be more of a natural query about how exactly this was going to come about. And God's response is amazing. And just to kind of paraphrase or sum up really the next few verses, God tells Abram to take some animals, to kill them, and to cut them in half and separate them opposite one another. Now, now this sounds really weird to us, right? <laughs> That's a very strange thing to do. 
But God asks Abram, he tells Abram to do this. And Abram would have known what was going on. Abram knew exactly what was happening. He was about to participate in a covenant ceremony. So covenant ceremonies were commonplace in Abram's Abram's homeland. The idea was that after a treaty was made between two parties, there would be a dramatization of that treaty where an animal would be killed and separated in half, and and then the two parties would symbolically walk um, in between the separated pieces of this animal as if to say, if I break this treaty, if I break this covenant, if I don't go go through with this, then may what happened to these animals be done to me. It was like invoking a curse upon yourself if you were to break this covenant. So Abram lays out these pieces. At a nightfall, a deep sleep came over him, and terror and darkness descended upon him. And then God speaks to Abram, <clears throat> Abram in the darkness. In verses 13 and 16, God lets him know what's going to happen in the quite close, immediate future with uh, God's people going into slavery, uh, the exodus, and, and, the, and the settlement of the land. And we're going to cover that in the next few weeks. So I'm skipping over that for this morning. But then verse 17, we read that when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared. This was what theologians call a theophany, a visual representation of God. This smoking firepot and this flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring. From the brook of Egypt to the great river, to the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hethites, the Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Now this is remarkable. Abram saw this theophany, he saw this fire gliding down between the divided pieces, and yet Abram was not asked to walk that same path himself. God was the one who walked down between the two pieces, not Abram. And this is astounding because this changes the terms of the agreement. It made it an unconditional, unilateral agreement. God upholding his end of the deal would not be conditional upon Abraham's faithfulness to God. It would be conditional only upon God's faithfulness to Abraham. That's what this means. If God did not do what he was going to do, he would be butchered like these animals. If Abraham's descendants did not get this land, God would die. And friends, God does not die. In other words, God would uphold his end of the deal and God would also uphold Abram's end of the deal. And this is good news for us. Because even though Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, Abram was still a man broken by sin. And all you have to do is read Genesis 16 to see how it all just kind of unravels. Abram takes things into his own hands and it just, he makes massive blunders, massive errors, massive sinful mistakes. Abram's life is a roller coaster. Yes, there are these high points of Abram's life where he is believing God and he's trusting God and it's quite amazing. But then there are these low and rotten moments where, God, where Abram is repeatedly unfaithful to God. And isn't this our story? Isn't it our story that we are saved, that even though we're saved, we still fall into horrible patterns of sin? Things that we hope that nobody else here in this room will ever find out about us? Things that if, if, if they were to know our heart, if, if they were to find out what was actually going on inside our hearts, we would no way say, oh, I'm a pretty good person. We would go, oh, that's so horrible. Why do I keep falling into these patterns of sin? 
Why do, we, why do I keep falling into this pattern of sin where it feels like I don't even know if I can call myself saved anymore because a saved person wouldn't do that? Friends, if that's the boat that you're in, let's get an encouragement from the fact that Abraham, even after that incredible night where he saw this theophany and the animals and the fire and, and everything, and the stars in the sky and everything, the beauty of all of it, I, even after that night, Abram still sinned. Abram still struggled. And yet, God was still faithful to him. God still honored the covenant to Abraham and his descendants. God is faithful. Even though we're not, God is faithful. And this is, this is what makes Jesus just so incredibly wonderful, so just scrumptious. In this scene, we are given a spectacular and vivid image of Jesus to come. You see, Jesus came, and, and like these animals, his body was broken. Jesus came, and like his, these animals, his blood was spilled on the ground. But it wasn't because Jesus had been unfaithful. It wasn't because God had been unfaithful. It was because we are unfaithful. The reason why God didn't ask Abram to pass between the pieces of animal flesh, and the reason why God does not require further punishment for us, is because God would wear the cost for our unfaithfulness on the cross. That's how big God's heart is for you and I. God is not cold and distant and heartless and disappointed. God, God's heart is big and warm and he is energetic in his loving kindness towards us. The center of God's heart, the absolute center of who God is, he is loving towards us. Jesus took our place on the cross. He was punished for our sin. Jesus fulfilled the covenant that God made with Abraham. This is why, out of the subtitle of our series, are Jesus' own words from John 5. You search the scriptures. They're about me. This, is, this whole thing that God takes Abraham through in Genesis 17, is, sorry, Genesis 15, is about Jesus. Jesus is the one who was broken. Jesus is the one who was killed. God is the one who upholds his end of the deal, and God is the one who upholds our end of the deal. God is the one who is faithful to us. Do you worry that God is disappointed in you? Do you think that maybe God feels that he got ripped off when he saved you? That maybe God's got buyer's regret every time he thinks of you? Friends, it's just not true. And we know that not because... God comes down and scolds us and hits us over the head. We know that because of the cross and that Jesus has already died for us, knowing full well that we can never repay him. Paul sums this up well in Romans 5. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Just look at that word, while. While. While we were helpless, while we were enemies with God, while we were still sinners, that's when Jesus went to the cross. Not once we <laughs> cleaned ourselves up, not once we made us a better ver- turned ourselves into a better version of ourselves that God might love us, while we were still sinners. Maybe you feel like you're a kid who just broke a dozen cups, and all you want is for God to come and scold you and so that you know it's been deal- dealt with. Friends, if that's you, preach this to yourself. God has already dealt with my sin in Jesus Christ, and it is finished. Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.